So we're in Acts chapter 10, starting verse 9. And this is famously known as Peter's vision. So if you, the previous verses, we know that Cornelius, Roman soldier, uh, centurion, oversaw um, not an entire legion of soldiers, but probably he was a, he was a commander of probably 60 or 80 men. Clearly, Cornelius is a Gentile. He has a vision of he has a vision of um, of an angel coming to him and telling him to send men to Joppa and to bring back a man who is called Peter. Uh, so there was really no. Um, this is a very unambiguous message for Cornelius. Uh, thankfully, and it's pretty pretty telling that he knows what he needs to do in this situation. So Cornelius obeys and sends his men to go. If you, if you look at the distance from Joppa to Caesarea, Joppa is about 30 miles south. So to, to leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then for them to arrive around noon the next day, that would be a very hard night of riding for Cornelius's men, which they pull off. 30 miles in roughly 30 hours, not even 30 hours, uh, roughly. So they're, they're doing about a mile an hour. <laughs> um, so then we're, we're looking at verse 9. I'm, I'll, I'll read that. That's my method. Is I like to read the whole passage and then walk back through it verse by verse. So about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, red letters, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him that to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. 
He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So starting in verse 9, Peter is on the roof. Now, typically, those roofs are flat. Of course, there's not a gabled roof. Uh, As we know, no A-frames in those days. They're typically used for relaxation, for fresh air, um, for tanning hides, for sleeping. And in Peter's case, just to have a quiet place to get away, to pray. Clearly, Peter is wrestling with the Gentile issue. He is retreating away to try and figure out what God wants him to do. Because remember, after Pentecost, just in one day, 3,000 people would join the church. That number, I'm sure, would continue after Pentecost. So we have thousands and thousands of individuals joining the church in Jerusalem, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he is wrestling with this question of how do I integrate these people? What am I supposed to do? Because particularly among the more conservative Jewish members of the early church, they would have been and definitely were opposed to Gentiles being a part of the church. So if you think church splits are a new thing, I have news for you. From the very beginning, the devil was at work trying to ruin everything. So this is not... This is really a story not only of integrating Gentiles into the life of the church, which it is. Clearly, Luke, in his mastery, he's one of the greatest historians in the history of the world. Luke gives clear detail to these accounts. Um, But it's also a story of paired visions that corroborate each other. It's one, of course, a vision for Cornelius, a Gentile, that coincides with Peter's vision of a similar theme. So the fact that you have a corroborating vision would have been most convincing to these individuals. Um, If this had happened to you and you didn't listen to what God was saying, I would be shocked. Uh, God is trying to make it explicitly clear to all those in participating in these visions that it indeed it is God communicating You see this happen uh, through, uh, for example, the birth of Jesus, right? Where shepherds are spoken to by angels, thousands of angels, and told that the Messiah is to be born. Also, men from the East are told in a coinciding vision, who come much later, of course, when Jesus is a few years old. Um, But still, you see this coinciding of this corroboration of, of, uh, of visions from God. 
You know, I hear a lot of people say today in uh, the Methodist Church, the Lord's doing a new thing, the Spirit is doing something new, and it's true. God is always birthing new life out of what appears to be dead. But you have to be careful when you say that God is doing a new thing without any sort of introspection at all or questioning to invoke the Spirit. Because it's, it's a dangerous game to say God is blessing what we're doing without having any sort of corroboration from God to begin with. Um, so in this instance, Peter is subjecting himself to the will of God, and he's waiting on God to answer, and until God gives him an answer, he's not going to move. So you can learn a lot from Peter's faith in this situation. He didn't just take his own opinion and run with it, right? He is, um, he's bowing before the Lord and waiting for him to answer. He's not just saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, and then God will eventually bless what I decided to do. He's, he's doing it the right way. It's harder that way, isn't it? But he does it the right way. He doesn't just treat God like a mascot that he pulls behind him and then asks God to bless his idea. He waits for his own God to tell him. Um, you know, for, for people to say the spirits of word, God's birthing a new thing, okay. I always ask those people, though, that's great, but did you ask God first? And did you wait for an answer? Did you listen? And if he does speak, if he did lead you in that way, it always, always corroborates with the Bible. It either corroborates with the word or it corroborates with another vision. And so that's how we have um, discernment with these matters. You know, for example, I was at a gathering of Methodist pastors of, of a certain sort last year. And a woman got up to pray. And as she was praying, I had a picture in my mind. that just literally never happened to me but in my life. But as, as she's praying, I have a picture in my mind of this huge mountain. And it's dark and it's foreboding and it's impenetrable. Like the Rocky Mountains. If you've ever seen the Rocky Mountains, it's these huge, huge mountains. That's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. And in the center of it, there's a little crack, and there's light coming out of the crack. And I thought, okay, I don't know what that means. And then a woman got up, and she started speaking the devotional of the day, the meeting, and she preached from Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about make straight in the desert the pathways for our God, uh, the light shining in darkness, the low places will be raised up high. And as she said that, I realized the Spirit was saying to me, you will get through what you're about to go through. It's the Spirit and the Word working together. Does that make sense? Now, if it was just the vision and no Word to back it up, I don't know about that. It's sort of like in 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about if someone has a, a word of prophecy. For, he, and he's, he's trying to give order to uh, what they call speaking in tongues. But in 1 Corinthians, like if you have a word of prophecy to share with the church at large... Someone has to translate it. And if no one can translate it, then disregard it. It's that sort of thing. You have to have something to back it up to, uh, to corroborate it. So that's what happens here in Peter's vision. Um, we can bump, jump over to verse 12. And where he sees what looks like, he says, it's like a sheet that's coming down from heaven. Um, you see this a lot in biblical language. He's doing his best to describe what he's seeing. 
It's sort of like the Apostle John in Revelation using words like it was like lightning and the, the walls of the kingdom of heaven were uh, like jasper. He's, he's trying to find an equivalence as best he can with the language he has. But when you see things of heaven, um, our language just can't quite quantify what uh, you're taking in. And that's what he's doing here. Something like a sheet is lowered. And on it is all sorts of animals, um, both clean and unclean animals, according to the Old Testament law of Leviticus. Um, the presence of the reptiles alone, according to Leviticus, would have contaminated the whole sheet. There would be no feast uh, for that reason alone. Now, as we know, the Israelites, and Peter's a good Jew here, were told to keep dietary restriction to separate themselves from their idolatrous neighbors. And you can look up Leviticus 11, 25-26 to see all of that. So he sees all these things, and Peter immediately, when he sees them, he's probably already thinking, whoa, 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 I don't even need to be close to these things. And yet we see here the the words of the Lord, get up, kill, and eat. Peter's hungry. We know. Um, Because someone's making food in verse 10. It's time to eat. Peter's hungry. He's probably probably, uh, been fasting. And, and here you see Jesus saying, get up, kill, and eat. It's an interesting way for Jesus to communicate this message to Peter. Why didn't, Peter, why didn't he just say to Peter, Peter, let the Gentiles in. Integrate them. Come on, Peter. But he doesn't do that. He gives him a vision of what Peter knows and Jesus knows. He's not supposed to eat. Jesus, being the ultimate teacher is using this as a teaching moment. Yes, these foods are unclean to you. I know that. But he's saying, I'm not negating the Levitical law, but I'm also the Lord. I can do what I want. I can declare clean. I can declare what's unclean, clean, if I want to. So the Lord's not tempting him, but he is proving a point to Peter. And so Peter does what you would expect him to do, where he says in verse 14, surely not. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. You see this also in Ezekiel chapter 4, when God does a similar thing uh, to Ezekiel, and he confronts Ezekiel uh, to eat impure things, and Ezekiel gives a very almost uh, facsimile of an answer. No, 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 I've never eaten any of those things. I will never do that. So the voice speaks a second time in verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This, if you look at your footnotes, if you have that in your Bible, you see Matthew 15, 11 is referred to here. Um, In that passage of Matthew 15, Jesus is directly debating teachers of the law over this issue of ceremonial purity, ritualistic hand washing, all those sorts of things, all those external acts of religion, which Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you do all that, but you're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but the inside has not been made right with God. 
And I can't, I can't dwell on that. And in Matthew 15, 11, Jesus is in a debate. I'm so glad back then they didn't have email. They could just talk to each other, you know? I get tired of email. It's better just to speak face to face. And you see this happen over and over again where Jesus and the religious leaders, they have these debates. They, they were, of course, intimidated by Jesus because they couldn't trap him and they wanted to kill him. They never could, of course, until, well, the cross. And he, he says in 1511, listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. What you eat doesn't make you unclean before God. So you can go home and eat pork chops tonight. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's really about what comes out of your mouth and what originates in the heart is what God is interested in, right? That religion of a pure heart before God. As Wesleyans, our goal is to be a people with the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, as John Wesley would say. Um, now, it's not to say we should not abstain from evil actions, of course, definitely. But in terms of being defiled before the sight of God, God, as we see in 1 Samuel, God sees the heart, right? He knows if you're pretending. He knows if you're playing games. And God knows that what we need is a new heart. So what difference does it make if you don't eat reptiles and you, and you wash your hands the appropriate amounts of time and all those different things? What difference does that make if you do that, but you treat your neighbor like garbage or you don't love individuals outside the walls of the temple in that regard back then God sees the heart so the advent of the new covenant God ended the dietary restrictions this would have this would have been an, an atomic bomb to the Jews right I mean this is what God is saying to Peter he's saying all of those things don't do them at the expense of hating half the populace of your city. You have to welcome these people in. This is what I want you to do. But more than abolishing the dietary restriction, God has made, has made unity possible in the church. You see this, these, this picture of animals of clean and unclean on this sheet. You see that unity is possible in the church, that the Jews are almost symbolized by the clean animals, if you will, the Gentiles symbolized by the unclean animals, and that unity is possible between these two groups by the comprehensive death and resurrection of Christ. That's because of the cross that these two groups are able to come together, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or Jew nor Gentile. We are all one at the foot of the cross. So it probably took him a few minutes to gather his thoughts when he was experiencing this. So again, not only does Peter have two visions, this vision happens three times. So to really get the point across, of course, we know the number three is a sign of purity, it's a sign of divine nature, it's a sign of heaven. So in verse 16, it happens three times. 
and then the sheep was taken back to heaven. So you see it happen over over again. Get up, Peter. No, Lord, you know I don't need to eat those things. Don't call unclean what I've declared clean. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I mean, it could have been redundant by time three. Peter's like, okay. If we know anything about Peter, he's a little bit of a stubborn mule, isn't he? And so Jesus knows who he's talking to. (laughs) Um, And then he has to get the point across. So in verse um, 17... While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men that were sent for in the previous verses, Cornelius, his men, they come to the gate. And Peter is still, in verse 19, bewildered on the roof. Then you see the Spirit speaking. They're looking for you. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. You see such an intimacy of the Spirit, particularly in the book of Acts. Um, well, the Spirit's always like that. But you see such a, um, a willingness to obey and to go where he, uh, he tells them to go. Uh, you know, when you read the story of Stephen, uh, Stephen, is the Acts says, he gets caught up in the Spirit and taken to a new place. You see the spirit moving, but not only that, but you just see them um, being, I don't want to say subservient to what the spirit wants. Uh, there's a real deep, deep willingness to obey the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's something we can have today, friends. It's not like it's magic. It's not like it was only reserved for these individuals. Um, but... Well, I'll say this at the end, but I'll also say it now. If you notice between Cornelius and Peter, what are they both doing when God speaks to them? They're both praying. So they're already posturing themselves in a, in a way that they could receive something from God. In a sense, as Watchman Nee said, they're laying the rails for the, Holy, the locomotive of the Holy Spirit to come. I mean, God will speak. God's always speaking. But we have to be in a position and a posture to hear what he wants to say, right? It's not like, I mean, yeah, he could, if if he can knock through Peter's stubborn nature, he can communicate to anybody. Um, But we have to be in a posture of expectancy. And that's what you see with Cornelius and Peter. So in verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And then they tell him, we've come from Cornelius, a centurion. He's a God-fearing man. Uh, That term, God-fearers, would have been saying these are people that believe in the God of Israel. They're not Jews. They could not attend uh, temple worship necessarily, but they they believed in a monotheistic, the monotheistic God. They believed in the Jewish God. So that would have made Cornelius an outlier in his own world, right? In the Roman pagan culture. He, the fact that he existed in that world and managed to retain his integrity among his peers was quite something. Because um, it says here that he was, he, right here, he is uh, revered. He was respected by all the Jewish people. So he, his, his reputation had preceded himself. 
and a holy angel. Um, angelos, Greek, means messenger. That's typically, there's, there's hierarchies to angels, but um, there are, I don't want to say millions and millions. It's probably, I don't know, can't even count how many million, how many angels there are, but a lot of them are messengers. They are sent back and forth. So when they speak, they're not speaking of their own accord. They are literally delivering a message that God gave them to deliver. It's not the angel's idea. They are doing what God sent them to do. Side note, I think angels are very tall. (laughs) Which is why people always fall down when angels show up. I think they're very big. uh, And uh, they definitely have wings. And they're very, as it's uh, Cornelius said, dazzling clothes. But um, so it's quite the shock to the senses when you encounter uh, an angel. So, so we see that. So then, verse twenty-three. This is kind of a big deal. You see, Peter invites the men into the house to be his guests. This shows that Peter is already. The needle is already moving more toward grace, toward the Gentiles. He's already starting to warm up to this idea. Okay, I see what you're doing, Lord. Because for a Jewish, a Jew to bring into his home a Gentile who maybe had worshipped idols, this would have violated strict Jewish purity protocol. But then again, at this point, Peter's living in the house of a tanner. So I think Peter knows I've already jumped the shark here in terms of upholding all the purity laws. Um, so very strict Jewish, like more conservative folks of back then would have, of course, never invited them into their homes. Um, and they certainly would have, it would have even forbade eating with Gentiles even offering food. But you would think you would think Peter would have gotten this message already after hanging out with Jesus for three years and sitting in Gentiles' houses and eating with Zacchaeus and Matthew and all these other people. You'd think at that point Peter would have gone, you know what? Gentiles are pretty cool. But he's still she's still still struggling with it. Um you know what I love those stories, those accounts where Jesus is sitting at the table with all sorts of, as they say, notorious sinners. And, and the Pharisees come up, I mean, and, 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 and speak and, and say, what are you doing eating with these sorts of scum, as they would say? You know, the houses back then, they were all pretty much one level. The windows would be like right here, little rooms. You could walk up on the town, off the street, and just look in the window and see what's going on. So a lot of times, that's kind of what would have you picture that in your mind. That's what those dialogues would have looked like. Very close, cramped, intimate. They would, the Pharisees would look in the window and see Jesus, here's a rabbi, eating with all these Gentiles. You know, and he would say, what are, you, what are you doing eating with these scum? And Jesus would say things like, hey, you know what? Sick people need a doctor, not healthy people. And the Gentiles on the table probably would have thought, did he just call me sick? I think he, Jesus just called me sick. I think he said, I'm, I'm sick. So yes, clearly Jesus ministers to Gentiles over and over again in his earthly ministry. Um, but he also acknowledges that no matter you're a Jew or a Gentile, 
we all have a sin problem that needs to be helped and dealt with. Um, And that's never, the the dietary laws are literally never going to make you right with God. Even Paul said the law, if you read Romans, it's a big chunk of Romans, as Paul just going through that idea of, the law is not negated. The law is still righteous and good. But without the law, I can never see my need for grace. Because the law shows me I can never, I can, I, no one can fully pull it all off. So without it, um, you know, it shows how much we need the grace of God because uh, none of us can be made righteous, right? So you see this, um, this happened over and over again. And Peter, this is a, a huge breakthrough for Peter. He's, he invites them in to the house. Not even his house invites him into someone else's house. That's quite the house guest. If you have that person over to your house, how would you feel if you invited someone over and they invited their friends over? I think you'd call them a, a mooch. Um, so this would have been quite the, quite the situation here. So this says a lot about his, his friend Simon the Tanner and the uh, hospitality he showed as, as well. So, verse 20, we can keep going to verse 24. So here you see uh, Cornelius' men arrive. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Then you see Peter return back to Cornelius' house the following day. And Cornelius was expecting them, and he had already called together his relatives, his close friends. And as Peter entered the house... Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Um, I think this happened a lot to these men back then. You see them, people try to worship them. And Peter gives the right answer, right? (laughs) I'm just a man. I'm just another beggar in search of bread, just like you. Um, So get up, do not worship me. But you see that in the book of Acts as well was when... uh, Peter or Paul, people would run up and grab their hands, um, kiss their hands. Amazingly, when the shadow of Peter would cross sick people, they would be healed. It's all the Lord. It's not Peter. It's just some vessels God chooses to use in special ways. And that's who Peter is here. Um. In verse 20, verse 28, again, we just see a repeating of what we've already read about. Um, But Peter reiterates it. Yeah, you're all well aware it's against our law to associate with Gentiles, but God has shown me that I should not, I, not we, I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Here's the first real, you know, bishop of the church, Peter, you know, having a, doing that hard internal work uh, of overcoming stereotypes. And that's something I think we all have had to wrestle with in our lives, right? We all judge people unfairly. We all look down on people in some way. We've all done it. Some people have looked down on you and thought you deserve to fit in a box. And we forget that all people bear the image of God 
as flawed as it might be and damaged as it might be, uh, we're all works in progress. We, we're not Calvinists, so we don't believe in complete and total depravity. I always like to say, instead of a capital T, total depravity, it's more of a lowercase t, total depravity. We still have agency. We still have choice um, in our decisions, and that they do make a huge difference. And so here it is with Peter. The Lord sets it on Peter. See all those foods? Eat them. I can't eat those foods. Lord, you know I can't do that. Hey, what I've decided to declare clean, don't call it unclean. I have decided to call these Gentiles clean. In my sight, I love them just as much as I love you. So what are you going to do about that, Peter? I need you to follow through. And Peter does. And Peter asked them, may I ask you why you sent for me? So Peter is not aware of this vision. He has not heard this yet. We know it, right? We see it 2,000 years later. But Peter doesn't know that. He didn't know why they're there. Again, there's no email. You can't text. And Cornelius tells him, probably to Peter's gaping mouth, three days ago I was on my house. I was praying three in the afternoon. A man in shining clothes comes. I've heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. That's a remarkable thing. That here's a righteous, God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius. And not only does God notice his prayers, but God notices how he has treated the less fortunate. And so the angel told me, go. Peter's there. He's living with a a tanner by the sea. And I did that. Now we're all here to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing how the church exists as this network of human beings. And many times the church loses its way when we forget that. Here's Peter having a breakthrough of his own, and then he's telling a Gentile, God told me that you're just as equally valid as I am. And imagine how that would have spread across the countryside, across all of these different individuals. Some of the hardline Jews would not have been happy to hear about this, right? They would have opposed it. This tension existed all throughout the early church. You see Paul writing extensively about the role of circumcision. Who needs to be in Galatians, right? Who's been circumcised? And I really feel bad for the guy that got circumcised too early. And then, you know, he's like, oh, really? I could have skipped that, you know? <laughs> Darn. That's a rough day. But you see that, that, that tension that, that happens. Um, you know, and it's one that still exists to this very day. But um, when I think when God's people do the hard internal work of realizing we have to be rigorous in judging ourselves and lenient in judging others, right? We have to remember that when you point a finger, how many fingers point back? I guess three, four would be hard. (laughs) Definitely three. And judge not lest ye be judged. 
as more individuals do that, and we deal with our own sin first, our own prejudices first, you're more like Jesus. And the church is stronger. And honestly, that's attractive to people. And it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's attractive. Because everybody, deep, deep down, wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to be loved, right? I was in youth ministry for so long, and then I hit 40, and I realized I'm not cool anymore, so I need to uh, get out of it. And <laughs> um, you see a lot of patterns of young people, and they're the same patterns. 300 years it's not people are still the same but young people and I, I was did the same thing when I was younger we always gravitate toward acceptance even if it's negative acceptance that's why the party scene is so popular because it's instant acceptance it doesn't matter you can be instantly accepted into a horrible environment <laughs> but you feel welcome so you like it and then you make a, really, a lot of really bad decisions after that. Well, there's also a positive sense of embrace. And that's what you see here, that there's a desire within the human heart to be, to be truly loved and truly known. And deep, deep down, it's, we know we have to have God. We need God. We need, only God can love you as you deserve, right? No one else can. My love is very conditional, and so is yours. It can fall short, we get tired, etc. But we're all looking for that embrace. And here's God speaking to Peter and saying, look, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people back then who do not know me, who will never come into the temple, who have no idea about the gospel. So what are you going to do about it? This new covenant has expanded beyond. Don't you remember the Last Supper? Do you remember, Peter? I am the Lamb. I am the Passover Lamb. Not just for the Jews anymore, but for every human being. To make dead people come alive. And thanks be to God that Peter followed through. I don't know if we'd be here today if he didn't. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, thank you for the grace you've lavished upon your people and that through um, human beings, you choose to communicate that grace. God, as we have been loved by you, help us love in the same way. And that's really what you challenged Peter with. As you told him, Peter, do you love me? And you, you, Peter said, of course you know I love you. And you said to Peter, feed my lambs. You didn't make a distinction between Jew or Gentile lamb. You just told them to feed all the lambs. Thank you, God, that your word does feed your people. And that you long to embrace into your flock far greater numbers than Peter certainly imagined. God, continue to use us as your people in a way that we embrace and see the image of God in others. Thank you, God, that your love is so much greater than our own. Forgive us for the ways that our love falls short. It gets conditional, 
you get stubborn, even angry. Strip away those layers that keep us from your heart and return us to our first love so that we are a people, God, that's pleasing to you and that will be used by you to communicate your love to the world. Bless these friends here. Thank you for their faith in you. Bless them and keep them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank